worship leaders, worship musicians, and those who love to worship. The Bible talks a lot about acceptable worship. What is acceptable worship? Let's talk about it. Welcome to Blueprint Sounds. My name is Nathan Smith. Thanks for joining me. Today we're in part one of a two-part series entitled, What is Acceptable Worship? We're going to talk about what it is according to the Bible, and there are actually two components. But before we get to all that, I want to give you something. If you go to my website, blueprintsounds.com, you can get access to my free PDF called 25 Chart Topping Arrangement Tricks. If you have a song that you've been working on with your team that's all right, but needs improvement, download this free PDF. It gives you 25 great ideas for ways to grab and keep people's attention through a song. And then it gives you a couple sentences about why the trick works. And then it gives you a song from the radio so you can hear the song in action. Again, totally free. Just go to my website, blueprintsounds.com, or you can click on the link nearby, which is blueprintsounds.com forward slash 25 tricks. All right, with that said, let's get to our topic today. The Bible talks a lot about acceptable worship, but to me, it seems like the authors of the Bible knew what they were talking about, and we today don't really know what acceptable worship is. A lot of people have a lot of opinions online, but usually it starts as a musical preference that then people use Bible verses to, you know, kind of attack the other side, whether it's modern or traditional or whatever have you. Uh, People tend to think that the worship that they like is acceptable and the worship they don't like is unacceptable. I'm going to take a totally different approach. We're going to look at a story from the Bible when David is bringing the ark to Jerusalem and find out what acceptable praise and worship really is. So when God was giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, God told Moses to have the nation of Israel build an ark of the covenant, right? This is what the glory of God would rest on. This is what the Israelites used when they crossed over the River Jordan. It's what they used when they marched around Jericho. Well, what happened was, during the time of Eli, when Samuel the prophet was growing up, Samuel is the guy who both anointed King Saul, the first king of Israel, and King David, the second king of Israel. During Eli's time, at the end of his life, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and took it into Philistia. Well, God wasn't happy He afflicted them with all sorts of tumors and boils. They load the cart, they load the Ark of the Covenant onto an oxen cart and send it away, and it walks into Israelite territory. Well, strangely, during the entire reign of King Saul, they never did anything with the Ark. So when David becomes king, he decides, I should bring the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's glory rests, into Jerusalem, the capital city. We pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. 
And the anger of God burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. At first, that story sounds really, really harsh. They were bringing the cart in, and the oxen nearly tipped over the ark, which would have been a disaster, and Uzzah tries to save it by putting his hand on it, and God strikes him down right then and there. What was so wrong with that? Well, in Exodus, God gives very clear instructions about how the ark is supposed to be carried. It's supposed to be carried by poles on the shoulders of the Levites. And God even says, if you don't do it, you will die. That's a problem. Well, Abinadab was a Levite. And the Levites were also charged with explaining and teaching to their sons every generation how you're supposed to care for everything that's concerned with the tabernacle. So all of the furnishings, the ark, and the everything, that's the Levite's job, and they're supposed to teach it to the next generation. Well, clearly there was a breakdown because Abinadab didn't tell Uzzah and Ahio, his sons, who were also Levites, how they were supposed to do it properly. So God is getting at something more than just Uzzah's sin, There was a generational problem in Israel, and it wasn't just the Levites. King David was at fault too. Let's go to Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy, God is talking to the people of Israel, and God never intended for Israel to have a king. He was going to be their king, and they were going to be led by God himself. However, God knew that Israel would want to be like the other nations around them. So he puts this in in Deuteronomy. We're in chapter 17, verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. So God was ready. God knew that they would do this. Even though that wasn't his original plan, he knew that it was going to happen. Let's jump down to the instructions he gives to the king who hasn't been named yet. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statues, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So God clearly says in Deuteronomy that the law that he gives Moses, and then that Moses repeats to the people, establishing all the ordinances for how they're supposed to live and what the Levites are supposed to do, all of that, when the king finally comes... God expects the king to write down on a scroll the entire law and study it so that he can rule the nation justly. He's not just going to make up whatever he wants. He's going to rule according to the law that God established. Well, Saul didn't do that, and David didn't do that. Who even knows if he knew that he was supposed to do that? Because the Levites probably didn't tell him. Again, the Levite order was in decline up until David's time. 
During the time of Samuel, he's the prophet that anointed both King Saul and King David, it says that during Samuel's time, there were not many visions and the word of the Lord was rare. So for all those reasons, David didn't know what the ordinances, what the laws of God were. So David has these 30,000 men. They're all passionate. They're all ready to go. The Levites are excited. We're bringing the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem. This is going to be wonderful. And then Uzzah gets struck down. And it was complete ignorance on everybody's part. And God still held them accountable. Well, David must have gone back and copied down the scroll like the Lord commanded. And here's how we know. Let's go to 1 Chronicles. So after some time, David decides to try again. He gathers the people, he gathers the Levites, and here we are in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 12. He says to them, You are the heads of the fathers' households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So David must have gone back and read the scroll and learned, oh, this is how we're properly supposed to worship the Lord. They had the instruments, they had all of this passion, they had this enthusiasm, but what they didn't have was obedience. And that wasn't just their sin, that was a generational sin. Who knows how far back it went? But nobody had been teaching their sons what the Lord had said earlier. That wasn't David's fault, but it was his responsibility. It was his job to go back and relearn the law of the Lord to know how they were supposed to worship properly. There's one more scripture I want to share that proves that David must have gone back and done his homework properly. We're in Psalm 19, verse 7. This is David speaking. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Before I understood how those two passages fit together, I would read Psalm 19 where David was extolling the law of the Lord, and I would think, how how is David getting so excited about this? I mean, if you read Leviticus, there are laws about mildew. It doesn't make sense. It's not inspiring. It doesn't, it doesn't make you jump for joy. Well, David learned by experience that just having excitement is not enough. You can get struck down for having excitement with no obedience, even if you're acting in ignorance. David learned through that experience that he needed to go back and get deep into the law of the Lord. He learned to love it because it was helping him to govern justly the way that God wanted him to. The way that God wanted all the kings of Israel to govern was by the law of the Lord, not just by their own whim or whatever felt good at the time. So what is the application for us today? The application is this. God desires obedience first. There are two components to acceptable worship. Component two we'll talk about in another episode. But the first thing is obedience. 
There's a myth in America right now that obedience is optional. Perhaps you've heard this phrase, Jesus only gave us two commandments, love God and love others. It's not true. It's heresy. Jesus told us which two commandments were greatest. He did not say they were the only commandments. He said they were the greatest commandments. God expects us to obey what he's already said because we must remember and we must teach the next generation what we have heard from the Lord already. That was Israel's problem, is that remembrance broke. Somewhere along the line, the chain broke, and God even judged ignorance. That's how important obedience is. Think of it this way. If you have children and you have something that's really important for them to know, a life skill like look both ways before you cross the street, you don't tell them once and then, okay, you're done. You have the information, kid. No, no, no. To begin with, you hold their hand. You would never let them cross the road by themselves. You get down on their level and you say, look both ways before you cross the street. Then you look both ways too and you model the behavior that you want to see. You do that for years until finally it becomes so much of a habit for them that it will save their lives multiple times because you're not always going to be there. You have to know that they have formed the habit of looking both ways before they cross the street so that when the bus comes, they will have looked both ways on their own without you there and they won't cross the street. God isn't mean. Looking both ways before you cross the street isn't mean. It saves your life. That's exactly what David says in Psalm 19. He loves the law of the Lord because it does that. It keeps you from death. So when it comes to acceptable worship, step one, absolutely foundational, is to love God's law and go deep like David did into obedience. Now that being said, that is not the end of acceptable worship. There's another component, but we'll grab that next week. Hey, I hope that episode helps you. And if you need help arranging songs, go to blueprintsounds.com forward slash 25 tricks. Until next week in part two, God bless and goodbye.